listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. This week, our hosts are Kendra Holtmore, PhD student at Boston University, uh, she, her pronouns, and I would be a cat as a house pet. Ian Benz, associate professor of elementary science education at UNC Charlotte, he, him pronouns, and I would also be a cat as a house pet because I would love to make humans earn my respect. Zach Jackson, UCC pastor in Reading, Pennsylvania, he, him pronouns, and if I could switch places with a household pet, it would probably be a frog because you get to hang out in the water and it's all you can eat crickets. Rachel Jackson, rabbi at Agudas Israel Congregation in Hendersonville, North Carolina, she, her pronouns, and I would actually be a dog as a house pet, even though I, I as a human prefer cats, but dogs just love their humans so much. And I would love to experience that kind of unconditional love and loyalty. It's totally unconditional. It's amazing. You're right. I take back my boo. That I, it was too. That's a good answer. I'm very sorry. Our guest today is a licensed professional clinical counselor with a master's in community counseling. They specialize in chronic suicidality and self-injurious behaviors, working with marginalized populations using a dialectical behavior therapy-informed approach. They're also a big fan of the show and have been helping me through this series uh, secretly without your knowledge. Welcome to the show, longtime fan and cousin, Abra Morgan. Hi. Yay. Hi, Abra. Hi. Uh, just for uh, clarification purposes, what I what I mean by that is that this uh, this series on emotions. After almost every episode, Abra has been Abra and I have been chatting over uh, Facebook Messenger about each individual episode and the parts of it that were helpful and the parts that could have been more clear that have helped me personally to help prepare for the next one. And I, we kept saying, I, I kept saying, Abra, like, we need to have you on here because when you say these things, they make so much more sense than when I say these things. <laughs> and so it worked out that Abra didn't have any clients in this time slot we asked you yesterday so thank you for <laughs> jumping in because we have been talking about so many really heavy emotions and we wanted to take some time to talk about resilience but before we do abra what uh what pet would you switch with well it's funny because rachel totally took my answer i would i am very much a cat person uh, and I would really like to be a dog. I think I'm naturally more behaviorally as a, who I am. I'm more of a dog than I am a cat. So <laughs> I would be a dog. They're just so happy all the time, you know? All like, the time. Talk about resiliency. Dogs can just do whatever. They can get through anything. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. And Abra, could you give us your full, for those that don't know, could you give us your full introduction? <sighs> Oh, yeah. So my name is Abra. My pronouns are they, them. And I'm an outpatient therapist at a local mental health agency for LGBTQ folks. 
thanks. And I love I love that you said that the resiliency piece here mm-hmm. with dogs. I I have a six year old, and he and I were just reading a book. I don't even know why this book was in my house. Um, it was one of the we we always have books in our house, so I don't know where it came from. It's called Belly Rubbins for Bubbins, and it yeah right. It is the most heartbreaking story you have ever read. Um, it no, is that's a, not what I thought you were going to say. <laughs> <laughs> it is this just like this dog who I believe is supposed to be a pit bull who is abused and mistreated. And, you know, as you turn the page, they get more and more scars. And, and but every, like every other page, it says like, but tomorrow I'm going to be happy and I'm going to get belly rubbins and and then they go to the shelter and they live there for a year and then finally when they're 10 years old they get adopted and and you see just this poor little dog covered in scars and like one eye missing and is just happy every every turn of the page is a resiliency that that just breaks your heart when you look at this and um I didn't mean to bring that story in, but you know, since we we're talking about dogs, and I just read the story, and I wanted to make you all sad too. Um, <laughs> but it, it is it is a really great book that that really merges this idea of resiliency. So that's all I wanted to say on that. Yeah, I'm I'm curious, Abra. So how did you like? What made you interested initially to to do the work you're doing and? Um, what what does it mean to you to talk about like being resilient? So I am a um, survivor of childhood trauma. I have PTSD myself, and um, I wanted to help people find their own resiliency. Is really a good word um, for that. Figure out how to cope with really difficult lived experiences and figure out how to make meaning out of painful things. Um, And one of the ways that I make meaning out of it is, you know, that I use my own experiences in treatment with my patients, um, helping them know that it can get better, helping them know that there are ways to cope with things, um, it's what I'm one of those. I like to make the joke about like uh, the Rogaine commercials from the nineties. I don't know if y'all remember those. But, <laughs> oh yes. You know, I'm not just the CEO, but I also I'm use the product. product. Yeah. <laughs> or whatever he said. Um, that's sort of how I approach therapy is just, you know, we're all sort of in this together and knowing, um, knowing that the things that I'm suggesting to folks are things that I've had to use myself or things that I've, like um, test it out, if you will, I think really helps inform my practice in a way that is really um, has been very helpful for the folks that I've worked with. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, what, what do you think is like the hardest part of, I mean, <laughs> I guess, yeah, I guess that's the question I'll go with. What What is the the hardest part of what you do? Um, for you. Oh. Just jumping. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Good morning. Um, Yeah. What's the hardest part of what I do? Um, 
I think what in some ways it might depend on the day and what's going on in my own life and my mood. But uh, right now it's, it's really been, I've always sort of made this statement. It's not, I don't, I didn't come up with it. It's um, our, our ethical code as counselors, you know, sort of talks about how, when there's something going on um, in the present moment that we're suffering from or experiencing that, um, you know, we really shouldn't give therapy to someone else. You know, we should have worked through it basically is the idea. And so that's why when there's a natural disaster, people are, you know, therapists fly in from around the country to go provide therapy to people in that area. And there's no one outside of the pandemic. There's no one Mm. outside within the U.S. of what's going on in the politics that are I am a queer person and I work at a queer agency and we have multiple rights that we might lose and, and having, um, having black and brown clients with everything that's been going on and having them struggling and, you know, uh, going to protest on weekends and then feeling like I have no energy or reserves left. I did all of my crying. I have nothing left to give. And then so having to make the tough decision to do less activism, less demonstrations in order to be able to stay stable enough to give the help to the people that I'm serving who are doing the things and suffering from the things that I am doing and suffering from as well, you know, while being like isolated for several months. And, you know, that just, yeah, having my sleep get all jacked up and just all these different changes. And then hearing them talk about, you know, having essential workers and, you know, clients that work in retail and things like that. And, and thinking all of the things that I'm struggling with and all the frustrations I have, I have a full-time job with benefits and I work from home and I am safe. And I know that my colleagues and my you know, my managers and everybody really care about us and want to make sure that we and our patients stay safe. And so they're allowing us to stay working from home. So then, you know, feeling like I, like I have a lot of gratitude for the, the privilege that I have in this whole experience. And then there's, there's this constant having to push back about, um, my own self invalidation around this has still been very difficult for me. And, you know, so there's just, yeah, just a lot of, relating to what my clients are going through. And it's not, I'm not relating because it's something that I've recovered from, worked through, did my own therapy on. It's something that I'm going through. Like they hear the news on, you know, on the radio. I hear the news on the radio. It's happening simultaneously. And that's hard. (laughs) That's really hard. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. And part of the reason that I asked that question is precisely just because of everything that's going on right now. Like, the pandemic, the politics, it's so hard. And I just sometimes have thought like, how, how are therapists being therapists right now? I mean, like what you do on a, a, a normal day-to-day basis is already hard. And to have something so like wide scale, like everything that's going on right now happening just makes it, it's like an extra dimension of hard. And so it's, um, it's it's encouraging though to like see people like like therapists who are committed to still trying to help while also you know slogging through the experiences themselves and yeah I 
I I have a follow up question, but it's like going in a different direction. So Zach, maybe you should go. Follow up away. I'll, I'll, I'll mine will mine will plug in okay. somewhere else. Okay. Um, just like hearing you talk about you know what what you're doing and why it's hard because everything is happening simultaneously as you're trying to help um, your patients. What what is something or like what are the things that you're doing, especially right now, to like take care of yourself or is there something that is different about this moment that's changed the way that you try to like be a healthy functioning resilient person and what does that look like for you yeah um well i when you're a queer person and you grow up fundamentalist like i did um you know you kind of get a crash course in resiliency of having to deal with really difficult things and figuring out how to like get through them Unfortunately, a lot of the times what we learn is how to push through and push down our feelings, how to ignore. And so a lot of the things that I did to get through grad school, being a first-generation college graduate, a lot of the things that I did throughout all of my 20s really are no longer really helpful to me. And they got to a point where they were really becoming harmful. Um being in a stable environment and and continuing to to sort of function as though I've just got to get through tomorrow. Well, when all of the days are kind of the same, it's not that really doesn't work anymore, and you end up just kind of constantly shoving down, shoving down, shoving down. So I've really over the last several years, and this year has been um, I don't know boot camp for for resiliency <laughs> in that way, but um, it's really been about finding balance. I have my own therapist for sure. Um, that's something I, I just, it's, I, I believe therapy is extremely helpful for all of us. And being, being a therapist, it's like, you know, I not only have my own stuff and then I have all the stuff of my patients. So like, you know, for sure we need to practice what we preach as therapists. Um, and then really there's, there's a skill called the please skill, which is from DBT, which is something that I teach my clients and something that I really try hard to live by. Um, Can you say what DBT is? Because I think earlier it was oh, sorry. before recording. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So DBT is dialectical behavioral therapy. Um, I'm a DBT informed therapist. And um, it is basically if cognitive behavioral therapy and Buddhism had a baby, right? So it's this concept of finding uh, dialectics, which is finding a synthesis between two seemingly opposing concepts. and one of the most common sort of dialectics that really is a foundation of DBT is called radical acceptance. The idea with that is cognitive behavioral therapy really focuses on change. It's a really great tool and methodology to help someone change their behavior, change the way they think. And Buddhism is a really great practice in acceptance and really focusing on accepting what is within ourselves, within the world, accepting reality. So DBT tries to hold both of those things at the same time, you know, sort of figuring out what is and accepting what is and also working towards changing. So we say things like you're doing the best you can and you need to try harder. Um, that's a really big one that we say to our clients. And that's a that's a big one that we say to ourselves as therapists when we feel like we're hitting walls in treatment. So that's um,
So please is about um, taking care of our basic bodily needs. You know, we think about the mind as this separate thing, you know, mental health versus health, right? Um, the reality is, is that our mind is our brain, which is in our head. It is in our body. It is connected through all of these nerve endings throughout our entire body. And if your brain isn't working, then your body's not going to work. And if your body's not working, your brain's not going to work. They don't, they're related. I mean, mm-hmm. there, there's a, you know, inseverable interconnection and i always make the joke like if we just cut you off at the neck then like <laughs> you're not gonna it's not gonna go well so really thinking about the mind body connection and thinking about those two things is intersectional um the please skill is talking about ways to reduce vulnerability to intense unpleasant or unwanted emotions through maintaining our physical needs. So PL stands for treat physical illness. So if you have a cold, you're more likely to be grumpy. If you, you know, I have a chronic pain condition. So if my fibro is flaring up, I'm way more inclined to take things personally. I'm way more inclined to, Mm. you know, be hard on myself. I'm way more inclined to grumpy is definitely a thing I am when I feel that way. (laughs) So PL is treat physical illness. Um, E is um, balance eating. So thinking about when we are not eating enough, we get like kind of foggy headed. It's harder to think clearly. If we eat too much, then we have a stomach ache and that can be distracting. It can also cause some gastrointestinal issues. And something a lot of folks don't know is that a lot of our neurotransmitters are actually in our intestines. So you know, that's a thing that people are still figuring out in psychology. But um, my I've heard that before, but I forgot that that was a thing. And now I'm remembering and like in awe of it all over again. Most of your serotonin, right, comes from from your gut. 97% of your serotonin is in your large intestine. Wow, that's a high percentage. I didn't realize that. (laughs) Almost all of it. That's why SSRIs messed up my appetite for so long. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And so whenever I've worked, I work with um, severely emotionally sensitive folks. And in in those, I've never met someone who's really, really emotionally sensitive who doesn't have stomach problems. And a lot of the times they're undiagnosable stomach problems. They've gone to GI doctors, they've had all these testing done. And my hunch, and there's some early research on uh women going through menopause. So it's it's a very specific group, but there's some early research that kind of seems to be suggesting there might be a correlation there. And so anecdotally, I'm like, yeah, duh. Um, but, <laughs> you know, that's anecdotal. That's not actual research. So um, but yeah, so to balancing eating, I think is, you know, really important. That's the PLE. A is avoid mood altering substances. So it's really about thinking, you know, if I have uh, I had a patient eight or nine years ago who um, came to see me for anxiety and I asked her if she drank caffeine and she said, yeah, I drink coffee. And I, I said, okay, well, how much? And she said, oh, like a couple, a couple cups, a couple, a couple what? A couple pots a day of, co- of coffee. <laughs> and wow. I, <laughs> a couple pots wow. of coffee. And I said, okay, first of all, um, so that is a stimulant. And in that large of a dose, there's a really good possibility it's exacerbating your anxiety or I don't know, it could be even causing it at that point. I have no, like, we got to cut down on the caffeine. I'm jittery Probably. just thinking about it. <laughs> exactly. 
So, um, you know, it doesn't have to be avoid mood altering substances like, you know, something more addictive in a way that is considered problematic by our societal standards. It's it, it, even something like caffeine done in large doses. Sure enough, she cut down on her coffee to like two cups a day and her anxiety diminished quite dramatically. We'll just give you that story. Um, so Success. sort of thinking about that. Yeah. Um, and then getting sleep is really important. You know, when it's, it's wild because so many people that come to see me for depression specifically have underlying sleep disorders, uh, a lot of times sleep apnea. I actually have sleep apnea. Um, they they might have just, you know, insomnia or just like disturbed sleep. They're getting up, waking up, falling asleep, waking up, falling asleep. So they're not getting like full REM cycles. And it really can impact the mood in a way that's like just really, you know, if you think about a time where you've had almost no sleep, um, then there's, you know, it's just way easier to take things personally and to really struggle with interpreting things. And then once we've interpreted something a particular way, we end up acting. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy sort of thing. We end up acting on that. And then the other person gets irritated with us. And then, you know, there's this conflict and it's like, aha, see, I was right. You know, um, and then you get a good night's sleep and you're like, oh, wait. And no. I was not right. First, <laughs> not first right. six months of being a parent is the worst in the world for that reason. <laughs> you can't sleep. Mm-hmm. So Everything's bad. the worst. So bad. So Don't true. And yeah, exactly. That's working with parents. It's always been a struggle figuring out how to, I'm like, you got to get more sleep. And they're like, <laughs> You want to take care of these babies because, like, I don't know when you think I'm going to get more sleep. So we talk about power naps and, like, <laughs> find the best that we can. Um, and then E is good. getting exercise. So um, so sort of mild um, 20 to 30 minutes a couple times a week sort of thing. It's going on a long walk, that type of thing. It doesn't have to be this intense, vigorous, high energy. I, I, I have a chronic pain condition. I certainly can't do that. But going on, you know some walks with a friend or something like that has been extremely helpful just getting out in the sunlight and that sort of thing. So that's, that's the please skill. So hmm. please, it sounds a lot like, you know, eat right, exercise, get enough sleep. <laughs> and turns out your mental health will be better. If we, if we take care of, if we take care of then the holistic understanding, right. It reminds me a little bit of halt, Right. Yes. Um, yes, yes. I often yeah. see those in tandem because I work with co-occurring sometimes. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Yeah. And for those that don't know, a halt is hungry, angry, lonely, tired. So it's oh. like halt what you're doing. I feel seen. <laughs> and ask yourself, are you hungry, angry, lonely, or tired before you make a response to something? And turns out if you fix one of those things, you're probably you're probably better off before responding. Um, so it sounds a lot like that. You know, we can all I shouldn't say I. I will speak in the I language. I can look at myself <laughs> and go, have I exercised enough this week? No. Is that why I'm moody? Yes. Did I eat four bagels yesterday? Yes. <laughs> Is that healthy? No. <laughs> Am I exaggerating? I wish I were. <laughs> We've all had four bagel days. <laughs> you know? It's just, yeah, sometimes they're good. Not sometimes. So it's really, I really appreciate that scale. And to me, it sounds like that, that piece, this please, which I like, I like, please, um, please feels like 
it it sits on the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy, which I know this group we've talked, whether or not we've used the term Maslow's hierarchy, we've certainly talked about it several times. It's one of my favorite triangles. Um, <laughs> people are like, isosceles. I you or do right have like, my top five favorite triangles. That, that seems like something Rachel would have. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> this is yes this is an obvious statement um and one which i feel like puts me in kind of a weird category that i have favorite triangles um <laughs> so moving past that so it sounds like please is really identifying the bottom layer of maslow's hierarchy that we really have to integrate and know our own bodies right something which I personally have struggled with knowing my own body. There is this beautiful episode in The Big Bang Theory long time ago where Sheldon like came out as a robot. It was just his face. If anyone followed that, I was like, yes, that, that I want to be. I just want to ignore the physical body that I am in. But that puts us in such a terrible place when we do that. And so I just wanted, just wanted to make that connection out loud. Yeah, I, yeah, it definitely um, touches on on Maslow's hierarchy of need, and I think something that's really important to for to sort of think about is the please skill reduces vulnerability to negative emotions, and it might help us to function as optimally as we can in the moment. When we think about what it means to function optimally, however, that also includes a number of other factors. One of those factors mm. being how well are we connected to our bodies? I'm non-binary. I have PTSD, and um, I also have a chronic pain condition. So I'm not a huge fan of the rest of my. You know, <laughs> I'm with you. Where I'm like neck up, great. But the but again, the problem is we can't live like that because then you know that it, that's not how bodies work. That's not how brains work. Um, but it is much harder to connect in those ways. It's also, I think, you know. I can do the police skill all day long and just have optimal physical health that I'm physically capable of having. Uh, and the world is still on fire in a way that, and sometimes it's literal, um, you know, it's, it's, it's really difficult. And so maybe I can reduce, this is sort of the difference between pain and suffering, right? We can work on reducing suffering through taking care of our needs, taking care of ourselves, not avoiding, not ignoring being in our bodies, being in the present moment. And there is pain that's inevitable. There's there's nothing we can do about the fact that there is difficult things we're going to experience. So I still experience all sorts of negative emotions on a regular daily at this point basis. And so there's a lot of other things we have to do. And for those folks who are marginalized, for those folks who are, you know, essential workers, the doctors, I mean, they're, yeah, they're, folks are experiencing really difficult things and doing the police skill will help it. If we expect the police skill to make our negative feelings go away, it will seem like it doesn't. Hmm. I feel like that's such an important, like clarifying point yeah. about the, the police scale and just like taking care of yourself in general. Um, I certainly have <laughs> tried to, uh, I, I feel like I'm like getting a free therapy session right now, actually, because I'm like, yeah, I try to do some of those things. I should remember that. Please keep writing that down. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but I, I feel like I still have these unreasonable expectations of myself um, when I think I'm like trying to do everything right and expecting 
I, I relate a lot to what Rachel you say about like wanting to be a robot. Um, I also have like wanted to be a robot. And so in those moments where I feel like I'm doing everything well, I'm like, okay, I can live as a robot now. I can like ignore my emotions. I don't have to like take care uh, or like feel things, which is not really healthy. Like that's not what's at the end of the please scale. Um, so I think that's a, a good reminder for everyone, but especially myself speaking in eye language as well. <laughs> Zach, you've been trying to jump in. Oh, um, I, I guess. Um, I... <laughs> <laughs> now you're on the spot. I know. Now I, I had said before that that question would come back around again, but now I don't remember what it was. So <laughs> that's probably fine. <laughs> if it was important, okay. it'll come back again. Um, I should clarify for the folks listening at home who are not familiar with uh, Maslow's hierarchy that oh, this you. is a fabulous triangle, um, definitely a top five triangle. And um, <laughs> starting with... Uh, your basic needs at the bottom, um, your, your uh, physiological needs, just the things you need to be alive, and then also your safety after that. So, you know, you need to be able to feel like you're not going to die, um, get those cortisol levels down so that you're able to function. So you can get to the next level, which is your psychological needs, um, your feelings of, of belonging and of love, and then you're above that, you're feelings of self-esteem, of, of feeling like you have accomplished something, uh, which for someone like uh, someone like me, I know I, I always struggle there. That's where, that's where I tend to hit a ceiling. Um, and that's just mm -hmm. been a part of my personality. That's probably a middle child thing where uh, <laughs> feeling a little overshadowed and kind of like the, uh, the imposter in the room. Though... Everyone has imposter syndrome, right? That everyone thinks that they're the one that doesn't belong. But um, I have meta imposter syndrome where like I know that everyone thinks that they're an imposter, but I'm the real imposter and I know it and I can't let you all know. And so I'm going to pretend like I'm a fake imposter like the rest of you so that we can get to the top level, the self-fulfillment um, where you're able to achieve one's full potential, including all of the creative activities, right? Um, creativity in a society mm -hmm. tends to flourish after all of those things have been met. You know, the, the Renaissance and all of the, the art and science and math that came out of this, uh, the classical Greek periods all happen when like you have a society where these needs are pretty secure. And once you have instability and uh, violence and a lot of disease and whatnot, it gets really hard to self-actualize. Um, so it works as a society as well as an individual. I'm curious about something, Abra, you said earlier, and I will mess up the wording, but you, you talked about sometimes what you'll tell your clients is that you're, what was you said, like you're doing enough, but you need to do more or something like that. You're doing okay, but you need to do more. You're doing the best you can. That, you're doing the best you can and okay. you need to try harder. 
So how, what do you follow that up with? Like, well, usually there's crying after that. So. <laughs> yeah. Cause I mean, I would like, yeah. like, so, I mean, you know, what, yeah. How, how does that happen? Cause right now you talk about, you know, the world sometimes is burning or is burning sometimes literally. And, you know, even the stuff that, you know, Zach shared with us beforehand about just the extremeness of everything going on right now. It's just, it's just so painful at times just to see it, that it does seem like sometimes it'd be easier to curl up in a little ball and, and hide away. Right. But we know we can't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, I, I now have a daily meditation routine and one of the ones that I did that I really loved the quote and I'll find it sometime is he said something like, you know, it was about dealing with media and how to handle that, uh, the pain that can come from just listening to the news and the angst and stuff. And uh, the world needs us right now. It needs us to stay awake is something that the person said. And I really liked that, but it's hard to stay awake. All right. So Mm -hmm. what do you tell them after you mention that phrasing? Usually there's, um, usually it's within the context of a whole conversation, but there's this sort of thing about needing to try harder isn't necessarily do the things you're doing now more. It's about learning some skills, learning things that maybe you you don't know. And that's, that's why I'm here. We're going to work on this together and we're going to both try harder to figure out what will actually be effective. Okay. So trying harder isn't about doing what is right or wrong. It's about doing what is effective. And a lot of times it feels like we need to do more, like uh, listening to the radio. Well, if I listen to the news more, if I watch the debates, if I listen to NPR for seven hours a day, I'm trying harder. Um, what that is, is crazy making, really. I mean, that's, right. that is overwhelming and oftentimes paralyzes us from actually making effective change. So when we stop and we think, what is it, what do I have that can be given to the world? What do I need in order to be functioning in self-actualization like uh, Zach was talking about that I'm not giving to myself now or that I need to find a way to access? We focus on those things. We focus on effectiveness. We can try harder without having to, without having to work harder, right? It's uh, that age-old uh, work smarter, not harder sort of concept. Right. And we don't always know. And I think that's something that's that's one of the things that I think is really helpful with therapy is we don't always know what the alternative options are. Not all of us are raised in a household where we're taught all the ways to effectively cope with emotions or, um, you know, manage daily life stressors. And even when we are raised in really loving, wonderful households that teach us all of those things, oftentimes nowadays, there's just stuff that our parents couldn't have prepared us for, even if they were like, you know, parent of the year. <laughs> so like, we all have a lot that we have to figure out about how to be effective in the world we live in. And it doesn't necessarily mean extra energy, right? It might mean actually a little bit less energy externally and a little bit more internally to recoup at times. It might mean focusing on regrouping and focusing on things that we're, we know we're really skilled at that are uncommon gifts. It might mean 
you know, it, it might mean doing more in the world and in our culture and in our society rather than focusing exclusively on things that benefit us. I think there are a lot of folks who could learn that. Um, and certainly I need to be reminded of that at times. I think we all do. Um, so it, it just depends on a lot of factors, but it's not about uh, giving more energy than you're giving. It might just be about thinking, how am I, am I really expending this effectively? And in, okay. in a capitalist society, it we have it in our heads that being better doing more needs to be able to be quantified. So like mm -hmm. I'm doing mm -hmm. my best, I'm going to work harder at my mental health, which means I should be able to, you know, put Maslow's hierarchy up on the wall and I should have like a little thumb thumbnail and thumbtack and be able to like go up. And now I'm, I'm at the next level. I'm at the next level, you know, like a, like a kindergarten behavioral chart when, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, that's, not quite how it works. I think this is one of the one of the revolutionary ideas behind Sabbath was that, you know, God built into the fabric of the week and of the cycles of the years to do nothing, to like just stop and to have that be enough um, that you don't have to produce, you don't have to achieve, you don't have to accomplish. Mm -hmm. You can just not and that is enough, you know, like, uh, as a, as a pastor, we're supposed to get, uh, every seven years, uh, three months sabbatical, um, three months. Wow. I mean, uh, most, <laughs> it's in most contracts. I know mo a lot of clergy don't take it because we're workaholics and we think the world will fall apart if we're not there to hold it. Um, fun fact, it won't. Um, mm -hmm. so what I usually hear is like, well, what am I going to do with my sabbatical? And most churches will will um, require you to bring a report back to them about what you accomplished during your sabbatical. You know, like, I took these courses, or I did this travel, I, I did this, that, the other, that your sabbatical needs to be productive, when even in the word sabbatical is like, <laughs> don't do the thing, right? If you're not producing, you're not a valuable member of society. And I think... You need to read Genesis 1 oh, again. Like, if we could just fight <laughs> that, that would be wonderful. Uh, I, I, yeah, I love the I love the concept of that... Uh, we are human beings, not human doings. Mm. Um, and that if we can get back to that idea that we're meant to be, not do, if we'd be better at doing. It, it, it's, it reminds me of that story. I think I've shared it here before, but, but if not, about the um, uh, two people chopping wood, uh, a, a wood chopping contest. Has anyone mm -hmm. heard that? No, I see. I see some yeses Maybe? and some noes. Okay, possibly. Yeah. So two people are chopping wood, and one guy is just there chopping all day long. And he looks over, and he looks over at his competitor, and his competitor's sitting down, relaxing. And his and this guy is just like fiercely chopping wood, and he looks over, and his competitor is just stopped. And finally, he goes to the competitor at the end of the day, and the competitor has more wood has you know has more wood chopped and he says to her how do you have so much every time i looked over at you you weren't doing anything and she says no every time you looked over at me i was taking a break 
and sharpening my axe. Right? Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. that we just that if we're if all we're doing is cutting, 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 we're just going to dull it, and eventually it's just not going to be as effective. Right? That whatever we're doing is just is less effective um, than not. I mean, we can even look at at um, at work. Right? The 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 nine to five, the eight hour eight hour a day, five days a week, is actually less effective than four tens. But when you get up to three twelves. It's actually not a. You're not effective any at twelve hours, right? You've, that's too many hours, right? Um, unless you're in a particular profession where that's where that's necessary. But for most people, right, that that's too long. So it's finding that that happy medium of, of just, of of doing enough, but then taking enough taking enough of a break. Um, you know, we've got those other cliches, right? Work hard, play hard. Um, and that. That time that you're talking about, you know, like the four tens versus the eight fives and the three twelves, and um, that that of course is all like dictated by the field you choose, the agency you work at. Um, of course. When we think about our own scheduling and we think about finding a way, when do I need to sharpen my axe and when mm-hmm. should I be? When do I take my breaks and all of that? Um, we all have different needs. I mean, there are some people mm-hmm. who don't need as much sleep every night. There are some people who, um, you know, need to relax by socializing with folks. And there are those of us who are introverts who need to relax by not socializing with any of you wonderful, beautiful people. Leave me alone. Um, (laughs) Go away so I can like you again. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And then, you know, when you think about the, the extra stuff again, you know, folks who have, doctors, parents. I mean, you know, I have a colleague who has a child with autism and she's a therapist and she's working from home. And it's just really been, oh, you know, and thinking about what she needs and what she's able to give herself is really different than what I, as a single person who has two cats to take care of, right? Like they mostly take care of me, let's be honest. (laughs) Um, You know, but sort of thinking about that, it's, it's, what I'm able to give myself is different. And it doesn't mean that, you know, she just has to suck it up. I mean, I'm sure she has days where she decides to do that, but there's also figuring out what can work for you. So um, a lot of times when we talk about self-care, there's this idea about like an hour long meditation or, you know, go, which is almost impossible for someone with chronic pain, by the way. Like if it's a movement base, sure. But if you want me to sit still for an hour, like get your life. Um, it's not going to happen, <laughs> you know, but it's also not usually possible for parents of young children who have, if you sit there for an hour, your kid has destroyed your kitchen by then, right? Like someone has cut their hair. I mean, it's just not a thing that you can opt- oftentimes do. But if you're doing a breathing exercise that takes 20 seconds and you make big bubbles. And then I just demonstrated a large bubble. I realized that this is audio. Um, <laughs> you know, make well, a we saw bump. it. Awesome. You know, yeah, you know, you can, you can make a big giant bubble and then make a slow snake sound, you know, with that's an inhale, holding your breath and an exhale. And you can do that with a two year old and just have the kid do it with you. And they think it's fun. I've done it with my nephews. Um, so there are things that you can do. It's about really figuring out how self-care can be adapted to your specific needs and your specific environment and not shaming yourself for doing that wrong because capitalism even has a foothold on 
self-care, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you're not getting massages and making sure your nails are manicured and, you know, (laughs) whatever, showering, like whatever people think is what you're supposed to do. I mean, it's like (laughs) there's there's all these expectations that are a lot of times unrealistic and Mm -hmm. there are still ways to practice self-care. It doesn't have to be a yoga retreat. I mean, that's just not realistic for the vast majority of Americans. So... put in a plug for um for finding a good therapist and not being afraid of trying out um medication that may be your Mm -hmm. saving grace um because a lot of the things that you're suggesting that you do um the exercise the eating right the sleeping all of that are the things that like depression would stop me from doing like mm-hmm. that's that's the most nefarious thing about like, major depression is it stops you from being able to do the things that would get you out of it. Um, it's almost like it throws you in a pit and then it greases the walls and then you can't get out. And that would be I mean, there were days when it would be such an accomplishment that I washed my hair, you know, that week mm-hmm. and I ate a vegetable that week. I, and that was an accomplishment for me. And I couldn't get out of the lower rungs of, of of self-actualization because I couldn't do those things. And those, um, when I finally did seek therapy, um, first experience was awful, by the way. Um, had a therapist in a not a Christian setting, not even a Christian setting, but he knew that I was a pastor. And he was like, I feel like I can say this Ugh. to you because you, because we're both Christians. But have you considered the possibility that when your depression uh, maybe came in when you stopped praying as much when you were 10 oh, and God. you invited the spirits of depression uh. into your life? Um Oh, I just want to punch that person. Yeah, I want to report that person to the board. He, that's yeah. he also that's harmful like, behavior. Oh my goodness, yeah. there was there was several other things. It felt like he had just finished school and was just like pulling out, like, all right, how is this your mother's fault? Let's see, um, what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't realize that you can get another therapist, and like mm-hmm. therapists know this. And sometimes you're just not good fits and they know it and they're not offended when you call and you say that I want another therapist. And they made me, I, I, I had to explain why I wanted another therapist in this particular um, setting. And so I kind of explained it. And oh. then I got a new therapist and she was amazing, uh, is amazing. And she's great. She's like an atheist, which is perfect because i'm out of that world i'm always in the christian world so getting out of that was helpful and then he stopped working there and i i i, I said did i get him fired i'm so sorry and she was like yeah it was probably for the best it wasn't just you but don't that was my first experience with therapy and i had fought it most of my life because you know, mm. mental illness is a weakness and it's something that you should be able to pray through and you should be able to, you know, I'm too blessed to be stressed. You know, I just need to 
crank up, Hashtag crank up my Hillsong and just praise the Lord and be done with all this depression uh, because uh, God has blessed me too much yeah. for me to be depressed. And once I finally got through that, I had a real bad experience. But then luckily, my wife pushed me to, to keep going. And a combination of this talk therapy with a wonderful counselor and also getting on um, some SSRIs, which increased my serotonin levels, um, helped me to get to the next level. I remember after like a month of taking Zoloft, I was like, wait a second, is this how everyone feels all the time? How are you not accomplishing <laughs> everything you've ever dreamed of? This is amazing. <laughs> oh, you mean to tell me you can just close your eyes and go to sleep? Wait. You can just want to go outside yeah. and go run. This is a thing you can do. This is incredible. And uh, it's been a struggle, you know, <laughs> having to adjust medication and having to adjust therapy and going back and then being done and then going back and all that. But that is like a life jacket that keeps me afloat so that I can do the next thing. Um, and it's a choice yeah. that I can only make when I'm not in my lowest. And so mm -hmm. like looking out for future Zach, who is definitely going to be depressed again, um, is important. Like I got to learn to love future Zach because I usually hate that guy and I do all the work. I do all the things to mess up his life. Um, but <laughs> once I learn to love future Zach, then I'm able to get to that point. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is if you don't have a therapist, you should find one. Um, yeah. That's I, a really good point. I, I concur. Totally agree with that. And I just want to echo um, the idea of finding a good fit. So when I moved to Hendersonville, North Carolina, belt buckle of the Bible belt, um, that's kind of what it feels like for me. Um, I, I sought out a therapist. I found this person. Um, we did a session. It was just one of those, hey, get to know you kind of things. You're you're not super creepy. I can come back. I came back. And not even, not even a therapist hour had gone by. It had only been like 40 minutes. And this person then says to me, so we've talked a little bit about Judaism and I've always been so curious. Can you and you're a rabbi, so can we talk about Judaism? And I went, no, mm. we we cannot talk about Judaism. There's a Google that you can use. <laughs> um, and I, I wrote the check for my co-payment and I left and it, I didn't go back. And then the therapist that I found since um, is Jewish. And that was actually really important to me so that I wouldn't have to explain or be this weird or, you know, or that same idea. Oh, you're clergy. So we can talk on more of a one one. I'm like, no, I want a one directional relationship mm -hmm. here. Right. It's nice. It's nice that if I know a little bit more about you, fine. But but this isn't this isn't I'm not teaching you. That's not what I'm looking yeah. for here. Um, and so for me, having someone in my same family tribe, my religious tribe was important to me because I felt, um, I just felt too othered otherwise. Um, so that was really important to me, um, which is, which has been super helpful. And I can say ridiculous things about our religion and not, not worry that I'm carrying this this mantle of judaism and and oh did you hear what the rabbi said um and then that suddenly like 
paints a picture for all Jews everywhere. Mm. Which, by the way, just sort of sharing into the microphone here, I do worry about that when I speak to this group, right? That I'm that I'm somehow representing all of Judaism everywhere. Which disclaimer, I'm not. No. <laughs> um, but it, you know, but wearing that, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't know if um, if Abra, you might have that experience as a queer person, saying, yeah, "This is what queer people are everywhere, all the time," and you you wear that. Yeah. Um, you know, and just making sure it's like, no, I speak. I speak for me, and this happens to be a part of who I am, but I speak for me. Um, so having having added that to, to Zach's statement, I did want to ask a question to all of us, and since we have a professional, perhaps Abra, um, you might also have an opinion on this. With Since we've been talking a lot about emotions, um, there is an, and you're focusing on this acceptance, but also change and, and holding that weird balance. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that there is this idea that it can be taught? So to me, I hear a difference in resilience as resilience is partly, is something that can be taught, that you can get the right tools, that you can move in a certain direction to become more resilient than one is. But I do wonder if there's just a personality trait that also lends itself better to that. And perhaps that's better identified as grit, okay. um, which, you know, fancy, fancy word of the, of the decade, this last, um, this last decade. So, you know, it, just wanted to hear your all thoughts on that. If the, if emotions can be taught or trained, or if there's something really just personal about them, uh, emotion, emotions can be taught, or resiliency can be taught. All of the above. Okay. Um, so my feelings on whether resiliency can be taught is I don't necessarily know that I would say there's a particular personality that has an inherent resilient capacity. I think that in our culture, we have certain personality characteristics that we reinforce. I think that we have certain personality characteristics that we shame and we have certain um, traits, maybe not even personality, but like just factors, demographics, whatever you want to call that, that um, get punished or reinforced, even if the personality trait is the same. (laughs) So um, it's really common in classrooms when uh, like little black children are happy and excited about learning a topic that they're sort of like labeled as um, easily distracted, you know, becoming problematic in the way that they're behaving. And when little white children have the same reaction or behavior, that they're excited about the topic, you know, oh, well, they're really enthusiastic and they're, they're always participating. Um, and so what I think when we think about personality characteristics or traits, which just as a a little side note, um, personality is something that not everyone in the field agrees exists. Um, but that's, wow. That's a bigger, way bigger conversation. Um, next time for the discussion on personality. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's a whole thing, but, um, yeah, I'm somewhere in the middle on that one. Um, but the, yeah. So the sort of idea that there's like something inherent, I would say, I think there are things that we as a society reinforce or punish and we interpret in a particular way and the way that a particular characteristic or trait interacts with its environment is what results in resiliency. And so I do think that there are a lot of things that we can teach. 
I also think that our society needs to be more open to divergence um, in these kinds of characteristics and thinking about coping in different ways. So one really common thing is folks on the autism spectrum, a lot of times will have stemming behaviors, which are repetitive motions or behaviors um, that they do that helps to calm them. And that's been largely like sort of uh, stigmatized, not just in our culture, but also by psychologists. Um, And so there's a lot of, a lot of emphasis and focus on trying to stop that behavior when it's not necessarily like, it's like not actually really harmful. I mean, headbanging, yeah, that if you're banging your head up against the wall, that's a problem. We got to stop it. But like doing this message where you're wringing your hands. So I don't know how to describe that for audio. Uh, rolling your wrist, I guess. I don't know what you would call yeah. that. But um, that kind of uh, behavior is not harmful to anyone, including the person doing it. I mean, maybe you could get carpal tunnel eventually, but I play video <laughs> games, so I'm screwed on that one. So, um, But sort of thinking from that perspective, when we, when we have this sort of one-size-fits-all concept of, of what it means to, to practice self-soothing and to take care of ourselves... Um, then resiliency is only rewarded when it looks a particular way. And so then other things that could be resiliency factors result in actually being risk factors because they result in shaming from society. Um, so that would be my thought on that. I don't know if other people have other thoughts. Wow. But. No, other than we should do a whole series someday on all the different personality typing systems because I find them all fascinating. <gasps> oh, yes. That would be fun. That would be fun. I just want an excuse to talk about the Enneagram. There you go. (laughs) Wait, what did you say about the Enneagram? I want an excuse to talk about it. I am obsessed. (laughs) I'm obsessed. Yeah, that needs to be a whole different. So, yeah, I want to. Yeah. That needs to be a whole different concept. Uh, I'm a one and I am. With a. With an exclamation point. I've, uh, <laughs> oh, with a two wing. I'm sorry. With a two wing. Um, I, I have, um, I've taken all of the things as I had to learn how to administer the, the ones that are like psychologically based. Um, I don't want to say more valid because I don't think they are. But <laughs> the MBTI, those things, the BTI, all the, all the, yeah. all the types of uh, test yeah. batteries that we do. So I've taken like every single thing ever and right. nothing has ever been as like read me so hard, like read me like a drag queen on Thursday night, like read me so hard as the Enneagram. I was bawling reading the description, like who has been like looking at my life, my Enneagram? <laughs> oh my goodness, I hate the Enneagram for that reason. Like I'm reading it and I'm reading all the types and I'm like, oh, these are cool. Like that's probably me, I'm this, I'm a four, definitely a four. And then I'm like, oh, who would ever want to be a nine? This sounds so terrible. I was just thinking And nine. then I'm like, it's me it's all the things about me that i don't love and i feel so vulnerable and exposed right now okay so i'm just gonna i'm just gonna throw this out as your 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 friendly jew here um i i was only introduced to the enneagram as uh from an episcopalian deacon who gave it to me who gave me this book on it and it was fascinating did they give you a book on it that's like a christian version Yes, like, that was the problem okay. because hence, <laughs> hence the Episcopalian deacon. Um, it was it, it was so couched in Christianity that I'm like I I can't see past that the mm-hmm. Jesus lens, and that was really hard for me to want to accept it um, as a personality type if the lens is Jesus. 
So I think we do totally need to talk. And uh, I think I heard someone say, um, throw out some acronyms, right? Myers-Briggs was mm-hmm. one of the acronyms sort of thrown out that um, at the four different levels. So I think, yeah, we do need to totally talk about personalities mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and how how that can how that can help us with our emotions, how that can then um, guide us to our own blind sides of how we view the world and how we can then find that acceptance and also push ourselves to something else. Um, and I think that that's, I think that's really important too, to say, I can accept myself fully as who I am. Um, and, and I no, go ahead, go ahead. No, I just, but I, it, I, <laughs> it's too many things. To um, I just want to say, I too am excited to talk about personality. And I think that what we're talking about right now about like regulating emotions um, and using personality measures of all varieties to help us do that. Um, it's just like one of the really interesting things about personality is that the more um, like popular versions, like the Enneagram, the uh, Myers-Briggs, like those, I think people often approach as being like a self-help sort of a system. Whereas in like social scientific research, the kinds of like personality measures that you use are like not for the purposes of self-help. It's more about like categorizing people and trying to identify trends and behavior and perception. And so that's like another really interesting thing about uh, like looking at these systems is that I think those are two big Mm -hmm. buckets that you can put them in. It's like, is this a system that's used to like uh, identify uh, generalizations or trends about humans or is it, like a self-help tool, um, which like self-help tool, I think also can make it seem like it's like of a low quality, I, I realized, but Pop that, culture. that's yeah. like not, it, it, they are really useful and meaningful for people, um, but are more like personal, I think, in that way. Mm-hmm. Prescriptive would be the word that maybe I would use, nice. right? There's one that's prescriptive and there's one that's almost diagnostic, right? Like mm-hmm. we're yeah. trying to understand what is the problem or what is well, it's not a problem really with personality, but it's what are, what are the various what are the various like traits or characteristics that how do we describe and like categorize them versus mm-hmm. um, how do we describe and categorize with the goal of prescribing something to do? I think of the Enneagram mm-hmm. that way. That's what I like about it because it tells me how I can be a better person. And I'm a one, yeah. so I'm really focused on <laughs> like yes, yeah, being better <laughs> and categorizing and. <laughs> doing it right yeah no well as a as a nine as a as a peacemaker and a bringer togetherer of people and things i feel honored to have uh to know you and to have had this time together and i hope that you will come back on sometime when we do talk about whether or not personality exists whenever that happens and so I just wanted to wrap this up by saying thank you for not only mm-hmm. coming here um, and talking with us and helping us, but thank you for doing the work that you do among mm-hmm. some of the most vulnerable people yes. in quite possibly yes. one of the worst times ever in any of our memories anyway. You are an important person. Thank you for being here. Thank yes. you. Thank, thank, you. thank you. you very much. 
This has been episode 61 of the Down the Wormhole podcast. As always, thanks for being on this journey with us. And a huge thanks to our patrons over at Patreon who make this show possible. If you'd like to help us out with hosting costs and recording costs, you can find us at patreon.com slash down the wormhole podcast. Join us next week as we continue our Sinai and Synapses interviews. We will be talking with the Reverend Dr. Crystal Clayville, who is a chaplain and ethicist at the University of Chicago Medical Center. We will we talk about pastoral care in COVID tide, as well as the environmental impact of dying, the unusual economy of organ donation, and just who owns your body when you're done using it. It was a surprising amount of fun to record, and I think you're going to love it. So tune in next week, and until then, stay safe, be well, and make sure to vote. <laughs>